Bo and Dave, what a combination. I just wanted to call and tell you that that podcast is my absolute favorite. I give you five star wait, five and a one quarter stars. Have a wonderful day. Hi, and welcome to that podcast, episode 10. I'm Dave. And I'm Bo. And we've made it to episode 10. Um, I think when we started out, we said we'd do 10 episodes no matter what. And uh, so here we are. I'm quite pleased about that. You? Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm pretty excited about it too. Uh, mm-hmm. I think our math, you know, if we, if we do the math differently, uh, we're already at episode, what, 10, 11? Yeah, if, well, if you, if you zero index, zero don't we? 7.5, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, but yeah, uh, episode 10. Uh, super excited about that. I had a chance to talk to uh, Jeff Carruth about that a little bit because they, they just crossed the 10 threshold a little bit ago. And um, so, yeah, we were kind of talking about that together a little bit at ZenCon. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. That was uh, that was Jeremy Lindblom. You've just had. I, I assume he's put. Is that gone through a voice changer or something? Or is it. Is it a, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> is it a, com- uh, you know, a synthesizer? I don't know. But uh, yeah, Jeremy was good enough to leave us a few voicemails and uh, that was one of them. Yeah, we might we might sneak another one in a little later as well. Uh, so thank you, Jeremy, for calling. Uh, on that, the voicemail number is one nine seven nine three five three zero one zero zero. If you want to leave uh, something funny for us, or if you want to leave something like a legitimate question or a comment, uh, go ahead and do that because uh, people are starting to use it, which is pretty cool. Yeah, definitely. So we we had any reviews or anything or any feedback on the podcast? No, not really. Um, the last one didn't get a whole lot of people responding. Yeah. So there hasn't been a whole lot new. Um, I realized when, uh, one thing, um, did you, who set up discourse for our website? Was it you? Yes. Yeah. And I think you added me to the account, but I've ended up with two discourse. No, not disc discuss, isn't it? Not discourse. Yeah. Discuss accounts. Uh, and I couldn't work out how to merge them. So, if I've not, if anyone has commented on the site and I haven't responded or anything, it's probably because I haven't seen them because I've not been getting emails. Um, I need to sort that out. But I tried to merge the two accounts together, uh, and it wouldn't let me. So, yeah, discuss is kind of interesting the way that it's all set up. Um, I, I think I probably have multiple accounts as well, or something. Yeah, uh, it's so com- kind of so complicated. Uh, some of the stuff you can do, and I think you can actually have sort of um, accounts on other people's websites mm-hmm. that would be a separate account from your main account, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Um, which, I don't know, it just all confused me. It was, a, it was very confusing to try and merge the two accounts. Yeah. I, I, haven't, I, I don't think I've tried to merge an account before, yeah. but even using it uh, on the client side, sometimes it's kind of complicated to figure out why certain things end up the way they do. And uh, even like the dev mode stuff changed at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to how that was handled. So yeah, it's discuss is pretty pretty massive. Yeah. Well, I need to get on that. Um podcast news for episode 10, I went ahead and bought some more equipment. I had, I didn't actually buy any equipment when we started out cuz I already had a microphone which I'd I'd actually purchased cuz I was intending on putting some screencasts together. I was going to make a site called ATST Casts and try and do some more advanced PHP bite-sized screencasts and it never got off the ground. Um, but it was only a very small uh, condenser mic. It was a kind of a portable one. Uh, but I've gone ahead and purchased some more equipment. I've got a little mixer on my desk now and a dynamic mic in front of me. 
So hopefully this will sound pretty good. Uh, if it doesn't, I'll probably need to do a little bit more playing and uh, trying to understand what this, all these knobs and buttons do in front of me. But yeah. Nice. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Um, oh, I w- so um, for semi-related podcasts, social media stuff, uh, not too long ago, we actually created an IRC channel on Freenode that uh, I know you and I are camped out in there. I think there's one other person in there as well. Uh, but we're pound that podcast if anyone, anyone ever wants to come and talk to us about stuff that we, we discuss on the podcast or just in general, if you want to come talk to us, uh, we're, we're hanging out in there. So. Yeah, cool. Hash that podcast yes. for people on this side of the Atlantic. <laughs> I, I, that only just occurred to me that we call it a hashtag on Twitter. Why don't we call it a pound tag? I don't know. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, again, further podcast stuff. Um, Adam Wathen, I want to say Wathen or Wathen, I'm not sure. Um, he started up a podcast, and I've only listened to the first um, episode most of the way through. Uh, it's called Full Stack Radio, uh, fullstackradio.com. Um, I tweeted him uh, to say, well done, I'm getting started, and also to compliment him on the, the audio production. The, the audio quality is amazing, and he said he used to work in a recording studio, so he's obviously very attuned. So I'm going to pick his brains uh, on what he does to see, to get some tips, I think, uh, in exchange for maybe going on his podcast. I don't know. We'll, I'll have to see if I can find the time. Nice. But yeah, he's going to oh, be, uh, going to be talking about everything. Um, the first episode was about CSS. Now I am a terrible front end developer. Um, I know about things like OO CSS and BEM and Smacks, but I only really know of them and I've never really put much effort into doing anything with them. Uh, but it's, so check that first episode out if you if you've not heard of those things or if you want to hear more more of them. So yeah. Oh, and the uh, his guest is uh, Matt Stauffer, who has probably the best radio voice I've ever heard. So worth listening to. Nice. Uh, I, I mentioned Jeff Carruth earlier, but I didn't mention the podcast. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know Jeff Carruth, uh, their their podcast he has one with Matt Frost. It's uh, loosely coupled. I think it's loosely coupled.info. So those are a couple other podcasts that uh, people can check into if they're they're looking for that sort of thing. Yeah, I'm, I've been really listening to, I really enjoying Bootstrapped FM quite a lot recently. Um, and Matt Stauffer was actually on that as, as well recently. Um, I'd recommend that as something if somebody wants a bit of a change from the PHP scene. Um, it's run by Ian Landsman, who's involved with the PHP community. Uh, kind of indirectly, if you like, but he is involved. And uh, it's about uh, two guys running software companies. Uh, so, yeah, very interesting. Nice. I'm still super behind on podcasts. I have uh, I loaded my shuffle uh, with a bunch of podcasts uh, on the way to Paris this last time. And all the way through like ZenCon, I figured I could listen to a whole bunch of different things while I was on the planes and whatnot. Didn't listen to one. <laughs> so uh, it's been... I, I don't know. I, I I need to find a way to do that. I'm thinking about starting to go for longer walks again, uh, starting to get a little more comfortable with doing that sort of thing in this neighborhood. So um, I might just take my have to take my shuffle out and, and force myself to get some exercise and get my podcasting in then. Otherwise, it's just not happening. Yeah, I'm still... Um, I need to get some new earbud headphones. Um, I'm using a, a really old pair of iPhone ones that are they're half broken and they're very quiet. Um and I never know where they are. I kind of like just throw them around because I don't care about them. Uh, so I need to get some earbuds to do some better listening. 
which I'll I'll get around to. Maybe I'll get some for Christmas. I think it'd be a good idea. I listened to uh, let's see which it's the texting. I, I finally caught up on. I think I did. I listened to like one and a half episodes uh, with Beck on one of our longer drives recently. I think it might have been on the way back from North Dakota the last time. Um, that was her first opportunity to listen to a podcast that wasn't ours, and oh, that was, it was kind of interesting because they were on their health thing. Yeah, uh, talking about all the the health stuff they were doing. So uh, that was kind of fun to listen to, but uh, it, it was a little different because they kind of go on about their little things that she has no idea what they're talking about. So uh, mm-hmm. it was a little little less interesting for her. But I, that that was the only time I've listened to a podcast in probably the last two months. Yeah, it's been a while for me. I'm up to date with texting. Um, the most recent episode was um, um, I'm about halfway through. Is they they. They had a what they called a texting summit. It wasn't a conference. It was just kind of like a, a weekend long get together with people who listen to the show. Uh, and I think they said uh, someone came from Latvia, so quite a trek. And um, nice. and what they did is they took money up front, but it was all it was kind of going into a kitty. And they sort of approached restaurants and things, and they had restaurants booked for the Friday evening. Then a restaurant for breakfast on Saturday morning, rec- restaurant for lunch, and restaurant for the evening on Saturday. And they just went and hung out at these restaurants and talked tech, really, whether it's startups, programming, uh, science, all kinds of stuff. It sounds really interesting. Uh, I'd love to have gone because it'd be nice to meet the the two guys who do the show, but also just nice to have uh, to speak to some of the other listeners as well. Uh, get a real range of people listening to that show. I think. Nice. Yeah. That- I was wondering if that was actually going to happen because so back when I back where I am in the series, it didn't sound like they were 100% on it yet. So they, they it actually went through. Yeah, I think um, that's awesome. I think they actually recorded with uh, a dozen people in in, nice. in Justin's house, <laughs> um, so cool. a live studio audience, as it were. Uh, so that's kind of cool. So what have you been up to? Uh, um, I've been. I don't, had I, I think I'd already given my talk at Forum PHP the last time we recorded. I was still in Paris. Yes. Um, so since then, I've, uh, I've been to ZenCon. So I, I hadn't been to a ZenCon before. And I'm starting to learn that every conference is a little different. There's like certain types of them. Uh, but I don't think I've been to one quite like ZenCon before. It was very corporate-y. Right. If yeah. I, very enterprise-y, corporate-y. Uh, so it had a, had a way different feel. Uh, so that's been most of what I've been doing since then is basically I went to ZenCon. Um, it was, it was good. I, I got to meet with a bunch of people that, that I, I know from the community. Um, I could talk a little bit about some of my, my talks. Uh, I decided to, uh, sign up for an Uncon and it, just as an example of how different this conference was, um, like at Sunshine PHP, if you weren't at the uncon signup list at 6 a.m., you didn't get an uncon slot. Like they, they go really fast. Yeah. Um, and this was like, you know, the, the first day I didn't actually have a talk. So I, I walked by the uncon board and there was like one talk <laughs> mm. entirely on, on the board. And I was like, Oh, okay. Well, maybe I'll just do a stack talk because, you know, we're at Zencon. It's a big, big place. A lot of people talking about different ideas. Um, so I decided to pitch my, my stack talk and kind of try to get people excited about it. And I had one, pe- one person show up, <laughs> one person total. And, um, 
and he'd, he'd used Stack before. Uh, his name's, uh, let's see, I had it written down here, Adam Lundgren uh, from Canada. So uh, rather than actually doing my, my Stack talk, I just sat and talked to him for like 20 minutes and kind of talked through like what he'd done with Stack and all sorts of, you know, things like that. So that was a lot of fun. He, he actually had used the Hawk middleware. So, oh, yeah. uh, so he, he built a, a little sample Silex application just to try out the Hawk stuff. So that was kind of cool. And I don't know, I just kind of like with how excited everyone's been about stack other places, like it just surprised me that no one seemed to be interested at all in going to a stack on con talk. So I don't know. It was, it was, I was also thinking it's probably a heavy symphony thing. And I don't know how many of the Zend people, like if they're there because of Zend, they, they may not actually be super familiar with the symphony ecosystem or even have like i don't want to say like hostile tendencies but like actively like well that's a symphony thing i don't want to go to it so i I didn't really get a good feel for it other than the fact that no one hardly anyone showed up except for for one person who'd already used it so well it 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 sounds like the uncom was definitely a second class citizen um a lot of conferences the uncons you know considered part of the conference and part of the thing isn't it i know they had uh the symphony live we were at recently the uncom was on a different floor wasn't it to the yeah to the other speak to the main conference and i think that made it quite difficult to to promote it to get people to go to to do talks and things or to the talks so i get that i, I imagine that had something to do with it as well yeah i i had a feeling that they really thought it was going to be bigger though because they actually had two tracks for the uncons, like they had oh, two wow. rooms dedicated to uncons, and uh, I, I don't know if that was it was just different this year or if, if it had been different in other years. Hmm. Well, I mean, um, you don't necessarily have to leave them open for registration until the day either. I mean, um, I know PHP Northwest; you can submit talks to or uncon talks to the uncon organizer. You know, in advance, and you know she'll try and uh, I think her name was Cat. Uh, um, she was trying to sort of structure the uncon, and then but also leave gaps for people to fill during the day and things. So, you know, maybe it's it shouldn't just be a last minute come and fill the the uncon. Yeah, try and organize some but- stuff there. You could ask people who've uh, not had uh, talks submitted. You could. Sorry, you ask people who didn't have their talks accepted. You know, if they're going to be at the conference, do they want to do something at the Uncon? So I don't know. Yeah, it, well, it was run by Michelangelo, and he he's the person who does the, I think he does Sunshine PHP, and he does a bunch of other ones, I believe. Like, he's kind of like the Uncon organizer to, at, at a bunch of these conferences. So, and he was there and he was, he would seem like he was promoting it just like normal. And, you know, they, they actually had a separate, um, uh, Zend on con URL that would direct you right to like the joined in page with all of the upcoming talks. And like my, my uncon had a joined in talk. Yeah. So our page. So, and, uh, a- <laughs> uh, Adam was actually kind enough to go give me, uh, a kind review <laughs> for, for my, my, uh, uncon talk. So that, that was awesome. Excellent. Um, my other talk was on Sculpin, and it was actually a slightly longer version of the Uncon talk I gave at Symphony Live. And I had as many people at the Uncon talk in Symphony Live as showed up to the Sculpin talk at ZenCon, which kind of shocked me a little bit. Um, I think there were maybe 10 people at most. Um, right. 
And yeah, so that was kind of interesting. Like I, I was kind of surprised by that as well. So I, I just felt like, uh, you know, those were my first two talks <laughs> and I was like, wow, this is a kind of, it was a way, very different experience for me because it just didn't feel good, I guess, in a sense that the, the stuff that I was presenting on didn't seem to be drawing a lot of interest. Mm. Um, so, you know, part, part of that is, well, I don't know what, what, I guess I don't know what, what to say about that. Um, there's not a lot you can say, um, but yeah, you know, sometimes you don't get the rub of the green, do you? So, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I was, I was super excited. I got, I got this talk accepted because I really wanted to talk about Sculpin, but, um, and, you know, I, I assume that the, the talks get, get accepted because people think that there's going to be interest in it. Um, you know, there, there was decent interest at it, uh, when I gave it at tech and, and you know, uh, it drew a, good number of people to the symphony live talk just as an uncon you know even though it was on an, another floor and everything so i don't know it was it was interesting um so that that talk went all right uh it, it got done in like 35 minutes or something like that because no one had questions and i just kind of like walked through everything and even though i'd added like an extra 20 slides to it i was actually not that much longer than when i rushed through it as fast as i could to get into the 30 minute slot at symphony live so um, but my auto loading and namespaces talk went really well. Uh, that one, that one seemed to get a lot of feedback. I, I mean, I got a lot of really good feedback from that. There were a lot of people who were saying that they were taking like the, one of the certification courses later in the day and had been really excited that they had been able to, to see that because they learned a lot, um, learned a lot of things that was directly relevant to them that they hadn't known, uh, prior to taking the test. So. Um, are taking whatever certification exams. So that, that was a lot of fun. That made up for the other two talks uh, by having one that was received really, really, really well. So I was excited about that. Good. Yeah. Your video for Forum PHP got posted, didn't it? Yeah. I, yeah. I haven't watched yet. Um, it's I have it open in a tab. <laughs> <laughs> nice. How many tabs do you have open? Oh, uh, not many on the Mac, uh, but wow. my... PC hundreds, uh, <laughs> enough to make Chrome crash on a regular basis, which is getting really annoying. Yeah, I'm pretty excited that the, the talks are getting posted from Forum PHP so quickly. Um, I I was I had been sort of told in advance um, at the conference. People were saying, yeah, in past years they post them really quickly. So um, mm. I, I was excited to see myself because I haven't actually seen myself present live before. Okay. Um, I uh, think Symphony Live Portland. They they released the videos, but it was just of the screen. Yeah. So, you, have, have you not watched your Symphony Live London video yet? Um, I only got to skip through that. So, uh, is is that actually published now? I, I know it was online, like in some private. It was in a private channel area. of some sort, wasn't it? Yeah. As far as yeah. I know, they're not online yet, so it'll be. Yeah. So I I think I had seen that just a little bit, like the day before. Or a couple of days before mm. the the forum PHP came up, so but I, I've been really excited about the forum PHP one, uh, just because I had a really good time presenting that, and it seems like the there's been a lot of people uh, with giving giving me really positive feedback and basically saying that they they've experienced these things as well, and that talk turned into um, like seeing how people have have read it. I I sort of feel a little weird because I didn't feel like that's what I was gonna get going into it if that makes sense um yep. actually one of uh have you seen any of the posts by bruno Skvork? bitfalls on twitter 
Um, is he right on SitePoint.com? Yes, yes, he's the PHP managing editor, I believe. Okay, so yeah, PHP managing editor for SitePoint. I, I haven't seen anything re- relating to your talk yet. Yeah, he gave a he he gave a review of Forum PHP, um, from the perspective of someone who doesn't speak French. <laughs> so, um, and yeah, he he was actually one of the speakers there, um, and he he uh, went into a pretty lengthy review of my my presentation which was pretty cool um which i actually liked quite a bit and um he wrote about it again when um you saw the the bauer php yes Uh, he wrote another article about that because people have been saying um negative things some people have been saying some negative things about why are you implementing this in php if you already have bauer why why do you need this and um directly relates to our non-invented here discussion last time and also basically that was what happened with sculpin um and what that whole talk ended up being about uh being basically a don't let people tell you not to build something you don't want to build hmm. even if it's implemented in another, in another language so um so yeah he's been he's he's actually talked about it at least two times now which has been kind of it's kind of interesting that that it's really like hit hit a lot of uh people i think like they've experienced the same sort of thing. So it's, it's cool. I'm, I'm glad it's out now and, and I can share it with other people. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I'm looking forward to, uh, to watching at some point. So how, did you, do you use Bower? I don't, um, which Bower is just for pulling dependencies in, right? There's no preprocessor there or anything. That's right. I can't remember. I, I've, I've, only barely used it um i actually as one of the things i wanted to talk about was um i just started to try to use i wanted to find another workflow for getting the angular stuff running mm-hmm. so i was looking at a couple of projects that sort of bootstrapped everything with a combination of um, npm and bower and using bower to bring in the, fu- the front end dependencies um, i think it might have some like minification stuff and like combining things but i, I haven't really looked at it too closely yet but it was interesting that this Bower PHP thing came up right around the time I was actually looking into Bower, but I opted to use actual Bower in this particular case. Yeah, I think if if I'm honest, I'm uh, I generally shy away from Node.js, and I don't mind not for writing things, but for using the tools. And I think that was because I I had quite a good play around with it early on, and. Um, you know, way before any stability arrived, which meant I was quite often things were breaking regularly. Um, dependencies were hard to manage in terms of versions, and you know, dependency hell. And it sometimes feels hard enough to manage one set of dependency uh, relationships with your backend code, and then to start having things relationships here with npm as well and then i suppose this um i'm touching on preprocessor type things now using things like gulp and and grunt um it just adds another set of things set of tools you've got to manage which i i guess i i shy away from probably unnecessarily uh but yeah so i haven't looked at bower at all really yeah it, it was it was the first time i'd really played with it in any detail this time uh, you know, firing up everything. Um, so I, I've 
totally destroyed my working environment on my Mac, which has been fun. Um, and part of it had to do with that. Um, because I think I had Bower installed globally and then I wanted to, um, I switched to use NPM to install it locally, but then I couldn't figure out how to run it locally. I wasn't really sure how that was supposed to work. Um, cause there's N NPM has the scripts that you can run. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something it does that it will look locally first. So you, you just say Bower install as a script and then I guess it uses it locally somehow if it's there, otherwise it uses a system one. I, I wasn't able to figure out how it actually did that, but, uh, in the process, I think I had to upgrade NPM and a couple of other things and kind of destroyed everything. Um, that along with, um, I think I had, I had some of those tools installed with homebrew mm. and, um, I did a big homebrew upgrade and that I found out today wrecked my PHP install that I had done with, uh, PHP build. Um, like the new, the new lib PNG is somehow not compatible or is in a completely different location. So I, I had to do some awful things today to try to undo that and get a different version of libpng installed. Yeah. I don't know. It, it reminds me how much I hate working with my local machine. It's like I don't want to mess its local development environment up because Absolutely. it's so fragile. Um, I mean, Homebrew is quite good, but it is really poor compared to the Linux alternatives. Managing packages on Linux and servers is a breeze, or is for me anyway. Um, I, you know, I, I work with Vim, um, as you know, and I use um, a plugin called Ucomplete Me, which requires Python, and it also requires a very up-to-date version of Vim. Um, and to get that version, I'd probably have to install Mac Vim, but I don't like Mac Vim because it's a special flavor of Vim for Macs. Um, I just want plain Vim. Um, so I build Vim from from source, I think. Or do I use Brew? I can't remember. But anyway, just trying to get Vim to use the right Python. And then also get you complete me to use the right Python from Brew was a lot of trouble for me. And too much trouble. Which just doesn't happen on my Linux machines. And yeah, it frustrates me. Maybe it's, it would be easier if I knew what I was doing on the Mac, but I don't yeah. like it. So the the other thing that I did, it, so this all happened this week. I'm trying to get back into being productive for a week before I go away for another week. <laughs> and in the process, completely destroyed my Mac's development environment. It's been it's been a lot of fun. Um, was that I have this problem with some of my Vagrant installs or Vagrant um, projects using NFS, which is fine and it's supposed to be better and faster and all of that. Uh, the, the downside is that anytime I vagrant up, there's like, depending on the last time I had done it, it might have to ask my per, uh, permissions or my password. And this particular provisioning script was a, a shell provisioning script that seems to not work very well if too much time has gone past between the time the machine booted in. Mm -hmm. I'm not exactly sure why, but basically I'll, I'll do vagrant up, go to another tab, forget about it go back and see that it's asked me for my password. Yeah, it's <laughs> classic. Like, oh. I do the same. Vagrant yeah. up, go get a cup of tea, come back, see the password. Yeah, and it's like, come on. So then I, I finally got tired of doing that. And I, I had looked around on Vagrant site before, and there was supposed to be a way to get around that. And I was like, well, I thought I enabled that. So I looked, sure enough, I had I had the correct entries in, in the sudoers 
dot D or whatever the, the thing is. And I'm like, all right, I don't understand. Well, then I realized I had Vagrant 1.5 something and the, the newest version of Vagrant is 1.6. I'm like, oh, well, maybe it just didn't work in 1.5. So I made the awesome mistake just getting ready to start on a project to uh, upgrade Vagrant. And I think I lost two hours trying to figure out what happened after that. Um, it turns out that I, I'm, I'm using the VMware Fusion provisioning um, stuff. Like I licensed that and bought that or whatever. Well, at some point I did realize I needed to upgrade my VMware Fusion plugin. So I upgraded all the plugins. But after you upgrade a plugin, apparently you have to apply the license again. Like it doesn't keep the license or something. So I, okay. I spent a good half an hour just not understanding why this stuff wasn't working. And uh, and it, it didn't give me any helpful errors or no, no information or anything. It was basically just complaining about uh, not having permissions on the disk um, or this particular uh, file doesn't exist. And it clearly did. And it turned out that all I had to do was apply my license again. And that was nowhere in the documentation. Like <laughs> there was nothing anywhere about having to apply a license again after you upgrade a plugin. So that was that was kind of annoying. Yeah, I had, I had vagrant trouble. I it was happening when I didn't have an internet connection. I basically I could vagrant up everything and come up fine, but uh, during the vagrant up, it would struggle to set the um, SSH key or connect via SSH. And and when I did it manually, eventually it would connect, but it was taking like 10 to 15 seconds to connect. Um, Same with uh, MySQL trying to connect. And I honestly have no idea what was causing the problem. It's just one of those things where I just gave up in the end. And when I tried it later, it worked and everything was fine. And uh, software just sucks, man. It's terrible. Yeah. Did you see the, uh, the Vagrant Manager stuff floating around? I think it was posted to Reddit. Yes, I did. Um, I saw it when it was first posted to Reddit, and uh, yeah, it looks really nice. But I don't really have that many projects on going at once. It's not really a big deal for me to. Yeah, you know for I mean? me, for me, it's not so much projects going at once. It's projects that are still going <laughs> as a virtual machine in the background, and you don't even remember it. Yeah. Um, so for for me, it's really nice to have a a good visual way to say, oh, you know, wait, why is that? virtual machine on for that project that I haven't worked on in a month, uh, taking resources. <laughs> so, um, I, I like it just for that. Um, there might be some, you know, command line tool that you can, or some set of arguments that you can send to Vagrant to list all of the, the possible machines. But I really liked this just because it mm. has it, has it right there. I can see exactly what's going on. Um, well, I just, and the, I just run virtual box to see the, the virtual box, like client shows you which machines are running. Yeah. So I'd just do that. Yeah. I guess that, that makes sense too. Uh, I, I usually have um, VMware Fusion just running in headless mode. It's not usually not even on. Like I can't, like the, like I don't even, it could even, it could not even be there and I wouldn't know really. Yeah. Like, so. But doesn't it have some sort of GUI client? Yeah, it does. Yeah. So that's um, what I meant by VirtualBox. So VirtualBox would be running background, but if you, I open the VirtualBox client to see what's happening. Yeah. Let's yeah. see. I it's guess not... it does actually have like pretty names. Do you do you have any non-vagrant virtual machines though? Uh, yes. Okay. I have um, Windows machines for IE testing, which I don't do very often anymore. Which is kind of nice in a way to think about. You know, um, maybe yeah. I'm, maybe I'm just being lazy, but I think most of the stuff just tends to work. 
so either I've got better or I has got better. Um, maybe, maybe it's just a difference in VMware Fusion because I see one. I actually I see two Vagrant machines. Only one of them actually. Huh, that's interesting. Only one of them actually shows up in Vagrant Manager. But then two of the Vagrant machines that are in Vagrant Manager don't show up in my virtual machine list for VMware Fusion. Anyway. Anyway, it's kind of a neat little tool if that's the kind of thing you're into. I thought it looked kind of fun. So I've um, been doing a bit more work on Mockery with Daniel, and I actually blogged about this, um, doing the the thing with the interfaces that I mentioned um, from that paper by the uh, Goose guys. And... um, I'm really enjoying working on this sort of new API for a product, you know, no implementation yet, just working out how it should work and how it's going to look and everything. It's really nice. It's got me quite excited about working on Mockery again, which has been good. However, I've been a bit disappointed this week. Um, so PHP unit, uh, Sebastian has just started, um, adding support directly into PHP unit for prophecy which is another testable framework. Um, so the, the three biggest testable frameworks to me are PHP unit mock objects, mockery, and prophecy. And obviously PHP unit comes with integration for PHP unit mock objects, but now there's, they're actually rolling right into PHP unit support for prophecy. So I'm now starting to think, well, if he's going to directly support prophecy, there's probably going to be very little chance of people switching to mockery when they've got the choice of two libraries already with PHP unit. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm, it hasn't bothered me too much. I was just thinking, I'm wondering, I, although I'm enjoying the work, I'm wondering, well, how long is mockery's lifetime? If you see what I mean. Because yeah. a long time ago, people would use mockery because PHP unit mocks weren't that great or weren't that friendly to use, but they've got a lot better. And as you'd expect, um, so I imagine there's less people jumping ship to mockery anyway. So I'm just wondering, is it worth my effort? So I figure yeah. as long as I'm still enjoying it, I'll carry on. But as soon as it gets like to be boring or I can't be bothered, I'll probably just keep supporting what's there but not put too much effort into anything new. Yeah. Is there any chance of getting mockery into PHP unit as well or... It seemed it seemed silly. I think I'm pretty sure he added prophecy as a dependency, which which is a big jump for me. You know, to add some to add another library as a dependency, I wouldn't just do that on a whim to something like PHP Unit. You right. know, because it managing dependencies is hard, and um, I personally, if I was running PHP Unit, I wouldn't add either myself. Um, so I don't know. I doubt it. I suppose I could ask, but I, I I don't think it'd be worth adding support for three different testable frameworks myself. So yeah, that's what that's that and Bockery. Not doing a lot. Um, somebody uh, Phil Sturgeon submitted Reaperbox to Reddit, uh, which has made my week a little bit more exciting than usual. <laughs> um, I had mentioned last in the last episode that I was starting to do a little bit more work and think about it a lot more. Um, so I wasn't really ready to shout about it yet. I was planning on doing it at some point, but someone did it for me. Um, so I've ended up with about 70 people on the mailing list, which is quite cool. 
there were a few comments on the Reddit page, but not a whole lot, despite it staying sort of towards the top of Reddit for a, a few days. Um, in terms of the actual work, I've done a bit of work, which has been, I've enjoyed. I did more sort of work on a proof, proof of concept, which was adding that authentication and authorization layer on top of um, Satis repositories, uh, which are also on a CDN. And I've also sort of put together the the basic build, so the script that will actually build the repositories, and that's looking really nice. It could do with being a lot more robust uh, to help me debug things, but uh, that'll basically take a payload from some sort of queue, build a Satis repository, upload it to S3, and that's all running inside a Docker container to give me some sort of security. Um, I don't think... I don't think Satis will actually touch any of the post-install TypeScripts and things, would it? I don't think so. No. I mean, I should check anyway. I'll check anyway, but I don't think it does. But either way, running in a Docker container gives me security against things like that anyway. So, yeah, yeah so I'm quite pleased with uh, a bit of progress I've made on that this week. Uh, not a whole cool. lot to show for it, but I'm making progress and I feel good about it. So Nice. Yeah. I need to send out some sort of email to those people who have signed up. You forwarded me your example, sort of first email you sent to Liquid Forms signups. Mm-hmm. Uh, I need to do something, but I just haven't got around to it yet. Uh, and as I said, I, because I hadn't really announced it myself, I wasn't prepared for any yeah. anybody to, to actually sign up and show interest. So Nice. That's cool. Yeah. Has the reception been positive, mixed, or not a lot of comments, it sounds like? Uh, a little bit mixed. Uh, some people said, isn't this just Satis and Torrent Proxy? Uh, and I said, well, yep. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I saw some people say, I saw one person in the Stack Overflow chat said he couldn't see people wanting to pay for it. I didn't talk to him about it. Um, but yeah, but other people said, yeah, they could see a market for it for sort of agencies and things like that. And my gut feeling still is that people would pay for it. I need to see people put their money where their mouth is, but I don't think it's uh, that big of a product to ask for people to pay up front or anything like that, or commit to paying up front. So, it's still something I would use, so I'm going to carry on building it, see how we go. Come enjoying that as well. Cool. Yeah. So, for um, one of the more interesting projects that I've been working on recently uh, for a client, um, we were we were running into issues with memory consumption and tests taking a really long time, mm. and uh, something I hadn't realized up front was that uh, they'd been using uh, Leap's uh, functional test bundle. Have you seen that? Um, only because you mentioned something about it the other day on Twitter. Okay. So I went and had a look to see what it kind of things it does. Yeah, it it looks pretty interesting, um, and I I just hadn't realized what was going on because I wasn't. I, sh- I should have looked more carefully at the the inheritance tree because <laughs> uh, they they had aliased at at some point I got aliased um just as web test case um which I think it was called web test case in in leaps bundle so I just saw web test case and I didn't even I didn't even look further than that um but one of the problems that they were running into with some profiling was they were starting to see that the the doctrine objects were having different versions like not different versions but they were like uh they were doing the object get hash 
thing to see that they were actually different instances of the object, even though they should be the same. Yeah. Um, so they weren't sure what was going on. Um, and then at some point realized they had like thousands of containers instantiated through the course of their, the whole test suite. And um, that was a lot of fun to kind of walk through and real, like see exactly what was going on. Cause once I realized that, that this was like the leap functional test bundle, like, well, what, there's this get container method. What's that doing? And it turns out the get container method uh, builds its own kernel and its own container that is basically its own thing for that for that test. Um, so th there were containers being created in places that we didn't really know or understand. Um, at some point, boot kernel was being called, which was basically creating a container separate from the one that the leap bundle was going to be creating. Um, and then, of course, when you create the client for the web test case, um, that also creates a brand new uh, kernel. Um, so it was it was interesting to like just like look at all these different things that were, were going on in this one little bit of code. Um, so yeah, that was kind of fun trying to debug that. I ended up spending a considerable amount of time just trying to figure out what was going on really. Um, so that, that was a lot of fun to, to walk through that. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, I didn't get to fix it yet because that was out of scope for that ticket. So I actually had a user story that was just to figure out what was wrong. And then the next user story is how to fix it. So yeah. That sounds interesting. Did you um did you see Benjamin Airbley's post blog post there, Symphony All the Things Web? No. Oh well Symphony All the Things and then Web in parentheses. <laughs> um he was talking about um I think I think I don't know who started this conversation on Twitter, but Lucas uh Corsmith had said something along the lines of depending on the how much business uh, logic there was going to be in a project, Silex on the the small end, Laravel somewhere in the middle for, for RAD, and then Symphony for anything with a lot of business logic and for code reuse. And um, Benjamin sort of followed it up with this post about how they use Symphony for everything, regardless. And uh, I thought it was quite interesting, and I, I liked his justifications. So he had a few um, sort of criteria for selecting a framework. And the first one was that he wanted something based on HTTP kernel, Symphony's HTTP kernel, um, just because of the, the out-of-the-box support for testing, uh, caching, ESI, and um, stack as well, to use stack um, middlewares. He said things like that aren't something that he uses out-of-the-box on every project, but knowing that he can go to it you know, with a few lines of code is a big benefit to him. So based on that criteria, it obviously limits the amount of frameworks, the choice you have um, to Silex, Symfony, um, you know, roll your own and a handful of other frameworks like Drupal. Well, Drupal's a bit different, isn't it? But you, you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. His next criteria was uh, the quality of the documentation and um, standardization as in... Um, you know, he works within a team, so, you know, the whole team needs to be able to know where this goes, where this should go, how to do this in a particular way. And, for example, rolling your own framework from components means that everybody has to learn something new on every project. So that narrowed it down to Silex and Symphony. His next criteria was um, specifically about uh, extensibility and 
the kind of range of bundles or providers that are available for the framework. And he felt that while Silex usually has something that's created in a similar way to sort of reverse engineered from the Symphony bundles, he felt that the Silex ones were usually a few steps behind the Symphony bundles. And also he didn't like that there's no root or dependency injection container caching for Silex, uh, which brings him to just Symphony. And his final criteria was that he wanted the one one framework to be the solution for all the things they did. And so the criteria would be that it has to be extremely flexible. And he feels like Symphony is. And I'd pretty much agree with all of the analysis in the blog post. It was a really good post. And he followed this but followed this up followed the set criteria and his reasoning up with uh, an explanation of his minimal symphony distribution that they start with for all projects. So you know, the small projects where Lucas probably would have used Silex, Benjamin would start with this minimal symphony distribution. And it was a really good post and I just sort of a lot of the stuff in there resonated with me. Um I'm not so sure. I'll have to follow. I'll have to check that out. I had yeah. to see that when it first went out. One of the things I wasn't too sure about is the claim that the Silex providers are a bit behind the bundles. Um, because in my experience, there are a lot of Symphony bundles out there that are old, unmaintained, you know, and haven't been updated to newer versions. And, um, one of the things that me and uh, Igor used to talk about quite a lot was how Silex was a good UI for the Symphony components. It was an alternate UI. And quite often, you know, Silex had to change to meet the needs of the components. Quite often we did it quite quickly. You know, in terms of the actual core providers, when a, com- when a component changed in Symphony, Silex had to change. Do you see what I mean? To keep up mm-hmm. with, with core. So I'm not too sure about, I mean, obviously a lot of the providers out there It'd be for Silex are probably out of date as well, and I think specifically you mentioned integration with the web profiler. Uh, still, the web profiler is still a second class thing with Silex. It's nowhere near as good as the the Symphony uh, standard distribution integration. But then it's not meant. It was never meant to be to be used elsewhere, so uh, that's understandable. And then speaking of the sort of root and container caching. This is something that's been on sort of, I've been thinking about recently. Um, cause for childcare.co.uk, we have, um, maybe, I think over 200 routes now, uh, for the site. And they do take time to, to configure on every single request. So I've been slowly, slowly moving. So of the 200 routes, about a hundred of them were Silex based, sort of, closure based ones you know we're directly attaching a closure to the to the root which obviously can't be compiled using symphony's root compiling and i think i shifted about 70 of those 100 in the course of two and a half days to be classes it was usually very simple just changing um the way things were retrieved from the container and stuff but once i get rid of those other 30 closures, I'll be able to compile the routes just like Symphony does. So that kind of cancels out that one gripe Benjamin has. But the other one, compiling the containers, obviously not possible with Pimple, or wouldn't be worthwhile with Pimple. You'd have to do silly things. 
But I'm wondering how much of that would be offset if I used the Pimple C extension performance-wise, how how the Pimple C extension actually performs in comparison to the compiled full dependency injection container component. I thought that'd be quite an interesting benchmark to go ahead and uh, give a try. What do you think? Top of yeah, um, so you, so you haven't actually started to do the benchmark? No, no, I'm just thinking what your gut feeling. Because the, yeah. the problem with Pimple is that you have to configure the container on every request where you don't have to do that with Symfony right. or with the full container. So the C extension is ridiculously faster than the userland implementation, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering, will it be fast enough to make it comparable with the compiled container from Symfony Standard? Obviously, it does depend on how many services you have configured. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that was what I was thinking. It kind of depends on how much work you're actually doing in the container. Based on how fast I, or Fabian showed some benchmarks of, you know, Pimple C, mm-hmm. I think it'll almost be negligible, I think. And I think the benefits yeah. of a compiled container would be things like, you know, uh, type hinting or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, could, oh, no, because it still doesn't do... It still doesn't... It isn't annotated with dot blocks or anything in the compiled container, is it? No, you know, for your ID or anything like that. So, I don't know. Well, it sounds like it might be a worthwhile experiment for, uh, definitely for your project anyways. Yeah, well, I mean, I think we have, like I say, we had 200 routes and, I don't know, probably three to 500 different services of some kind. Or maybe not. That sounds like a lot. I don't know. But yeah, worth checking out. And that, that yeah. post is definitely worth checking out. People should read cool, that. Oh yeah, I'll, I'll have to check it out. So it sounds... You know, I, I usually steer towards Silex early on just because it's easier for me. Um, but it might be, it, it might be worth looking into trying to do a minimal project at some point with Symphony just to see what it feels like. So I'll definitely check that article out. So I, uh, I actually bootstrapped a Symphony skeleton for the admin panel for repo box and then changed my mind again. And went with Laravel. Um, basically, I wanted the rad things from Laravel enough to make me move away from Symphony. Um, mm-hmm. Now I know this Foz user bundle, but I just don't like it. And <laughs> I know it's silly, but um, what I really want for something like a user bundle is I want it to generate all of the things for me. I don't want to have to extend things. I don't want to have to. Do you see? Do you see what I mean? Yeah. I'm like, I want it to literally generate an authentication controller for me in the in my code base and say, "This is my controller now. You can change it as much as you like going forward." Mm. Instead of you know extension points here, there, and everywhere. Mm. And the other thing, uh, Laravel has a thing called Cashier, uh, which is a Stripe integration for essentially for SaaS products. That's really simple. I don't know if there's anything as simple as it for Symphony. If it is, I couldn't find it. So yeah, and to be honest, I haven't done much with the Laravel version. I've probably run into roadblocks like I have done with Symphony that annoy me or bug me. And I, I think I think I tweeted about this. I've I've worked with frameworks. Oh, sorry, I've worked without frameworks for so long. I don't really count Silex as a full framework. That my tolerance for the 
you know, imposed conventions and ways to do things as the frame is, is diminished somewhat that when I try and use a framework, I just get frustrated with it. And so I'm trying to fight that to get the benefit of things like the, you know, built in user management in terms of authentication, uh, forgotten passwords and billing that comes with something like Laravel. Um, but it's hard. I, I struggle. Um, so th- those things are actually built into the framework. So it's more built in than Symphony. <laughs> Could I put it that way? Um, they have interfaces for just about everything. So basically, um, you've got to, like with Foz user bundle, if you have a user entity, you can get it to implement a few interfaces and that will plug it into the authentication system. And the cashier thing, which is the, the stripe billing, again, a few interfaces that you have to implement with your user entity or account entity. And then it starts to, you know, integrate for you. Um, I just think it's nowhere near as extensible as Symphony in the terms of like the way false user bundle is. But I don't need most of that extensibility right now. And I probably won't in the future anyway. So, yeah. Yeah, not long ago, I, I sent out a tweet basically saying I need to use Laravel just to try it. Because I, I haven't actually fired up an application before. Um, I've done that with Symphony, but I haven't done that with Laravel yet. And you know, I made I've I've made some progress on some Symphony apps, and I've worked in a bunch of Symphony apps, but I haven't created anything from scratch in a while in a Symphony app. Um, and I and I just have never touched Laravel ever. Mm. So I well, think it would be a good thing to experiment with. I've, I'm actually started using Laravel five, which is. Difficult because the docs aren't up to date yet, and it's still, it's not even beta yet. Uh, but I didn't want to start to learn Laravel four now to have five come out at the end of the month, and so it's been difficult because I want to use Doctrine. So there is a couple, there are a couple of Doctrine providers with Laravel that provide those same implementations of the interfaces for the authentication and such. Um, so that was difficult. I had to do a bit of work to make sure that was up to date enough to work with Laravel five. But a couple of the nice things about Laravel 5 are, so in Laravel 4, as far as I know, they had things like these start files and start.php would be a file where things get bootstrapped. And and there was there were more than one of these. There were several of these. But they're moving towards more of a service provider-based thing now, I think. And the other thing is the config's changing uh, to be a bit more simple. It's actually changing to be more like what I use on my projects now. In fact, I think I, I showed Taylor the the merging function that I use to sort of cascade configs over the top of each other. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm I'm kind of used to that. So that's kind of nice. And to be honest, it's very. I won't use half of the features that make it the framework it is, but the the authentication and the billing stuff, if it works will be enough of a win for me, I think. So we'll see. Cool. Yeah. So so that's that's what you're currently working on for RepoBox. Well, like I say, there's three parts to RepoBox. There's the a sort of admin panel where people will configure their repositories. 
and you know manage their user account and such. So that's going to be the Laravel app. There is the the site the the software that serves the repositories. That at the minute is is actually just bare bones PHP, but will probably be a Silex app when I start to implement the authentication and authorization stuff. And then there is the builder, the thing that builds the repositories based on the information from the to the control panel and puts them in the right place. And that's just plain old PHP. And that's the big, the thing that's running in Docker. Uh, so I won't go as quite as far as to say microservices, but they are distinct pieces of software. If you see cool. what I mean. Yeah. Yep. So, so some, I, don't, I don't know why, but this, this popped into my head and somehow related to what we're talking about. I can't remember why. Um, I saw Hari send a tweet about uh, Guzzle 5, I think. Is, right. is Guzzle 5 out now? Yeah, and I how, so, yeah. um it would make more sense to have version numbers in the namespace somewhere. Um, and it got me thinking that that's sort of related to like the decomposing stuff because the the problem is that you can't have this multiple versions of the same library anywhere in your stack. Yeah. So, like, if you're using something that's using you know Guzzle three can't also have another part using Guzzle 4, and you can't use something else that's using Guzzle 5. Um, and it, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about with Pimple as well, because there's such big differences between Pimple 1 and 2 that basically any all of the Silex service providers need to be overhauled mm. to move from, from 1 to 2. And right now, like if I want to go to... to Before I'd move my Doctrine Orm provider up to, to support Pimple 3, you couldn't use anything that used that. <laughs> Yeah, it's hard, isn't so, it? So, yeah, it's it's kind of it's, it's a hard problem. Um, I don't think that version numbers and the namespaces are are the right solution, but I'm not sure how else to get around a problem like that. I think the thing with Guzzle is it moves so quickly, yet you know is really widely adopted. Um, so that's the problem, basically. I mean, they're trying to build something like the obviously the AWS SDK is directly linked to Guzzle. And they're trying to build that to be something extremely stable, and it has to be extremely stable because it's important for AWS's business, you know, because it's the way we interact with AWS. But they want to move Guzzle forward as well, and they simply can't do that in a breaking fashion when they have something as important as the AWS SDK to support, especially when it's, you know... A dependency on so many applications, or of, of so many applications, so it's hard. Yeah, I mean, they Guzzle does do it, doesn't it? Is it Guzzle three, four, and five are in separate, or is Guzzle five Guzzle HTTP or something like that? It's a slightly different namespace. Yeah, I think I think the namespace has changed between three and four. Three and four. And I don't right. know what's happened with five now because right. I, I haven't been following it closely enough to know what major things change between four and five. I do know that every time I look something up in the docs, I am looking at the wrong version. <laughs> through probably no fault of anybody but my own, but I keep doing it. Yeah. It's interesting how uh, NPM does this. Have you ever seen how NPM does this kind I of thing? I heard someone talking about that. They actually, if there's a conflict in the the versions, it installs another version of it. Yeah, I, as far as I know, it's almost like each component can have its own. So 
each dependency of your project can have its own folder full of its sub-dependencies, you know, in case of conflicts. Uh, I can only imagine that leads to some confusion at some point, especially if you expect to pass things from one component to another. Right. Um, you know, having known the types or the data structures in JSON and JavaScript, but yeah, I don't think that would work for us and I wouldn't want to, to, to approach anything like that unless it was yeah. manually in my own code by decomposing things in a way that we felt safe and so on. Yeah. So I don't think I have anything else code-wise. I have a couple of random... Uh, I have one piece of software that I wanted to talk about and uh, another podcast thing. Go for it. Um, at some point, I got on the mailing list uh, for Typed, it's a new Markdown editor. Have you seen that coming out? I haven't. No, I, I haven't looked. At, I don't really look at Markdown editors. I, I just use Vim. Yeah, um, I have like five of them. So, um, <laughs> but and and all of them annoy me in different ways. So I I'm hoping this one's going to be interesting. I've been using MOU. Uh, I don't know if you actually are supposed to pronounce that, um, but I've been using that for a while, and I finally switched to Markdown, which was kind of a it wasn't really a port. They basically just made the same thing to look exactly the same way, but I don't think they had the source code or anything for it. Um, so I've, I've been using that a little bit. Uh, but yeah, this one's this one's coming out soon, so I'm kind of looking forward to that. I do a lot with Markdown, and um, yeah, so I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing a new new editor and see if it behaves well and looks good. Um, and it, have you seen? Uh, have you checked out any of the No Capes? Uh, videos you know I actually haven't watched them yet but uh, I'm kind of excited to see another uh, another project out there like that you've, you've seen the project though right yeah I have um, is it Kayla Daniels yep yep yeah I have seen it yeah and premise being that uh, people who speak at conferences and such are not superheroes and they are yep. just humans and mm-hmm. these are kind of are the interviews I I th- but like I said, I, I feel bad I haven't actually watched any yet. I this started right around the time I stopped being able to do podcasty things. There's so much content to consume; it's it's hard to keep up. Yeah, but yeah, it's kind of I'm I'm excited that that that's happening too. So that's another another cool thing to, that's going on in the community right now, which is pretty nice. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, best you want, practices. You want to talk about symphony best practices? Yeah, um, I, I I feel like we sort of already talked about it a little bit like talking about like these minimal skeleton projects like i wonder how many of those would fall under this best practices category i'm I'm sensing not from what i've heard from people online um no definitely it's not really the best practices are kind of aimed at people who are using symphony wholesale you know the standard distribution uh not really doesn't mention using components or anything like that um i think we're we're a bit behind in terms of you know it came out the beginning of this month, I think. Oh, sorry, the beginning yeah. of last month now. But I found them quite interesting. I found myself agreeing with a lot of the stuff in there more than I thought I would, to the point where I actually defended it a little bit uh, in IRC. And um, I don't know. I don't think it was as bad as some people thought it was going to be. There are definitely some issues with the wording, uh, which I think I was one of the first things I was I was going to mention. And at least I've seen at least two blog posts mention this so far. But pretty much um, in this, literally the second paragraph, I'll quote this. Um, 
it's basically he's talking about there's lots of community resources like blog posts and presentation. They've com- they've created an unofficial set of recommendations for developing Symfony applications. Unfortunately, a lot of these recommendations are in fact wrong. <laughs> and I don't think that's really the kind of language they want to they start with um, to just outright say that other people are wrong isn't yeah. really it's not really what best practice is about is it yeah so um if you read the if you read the next pro, pro uh, paragraph sorry um it puts a bit more context into that it's saying that these best practices are the fit the philosophy that Fabian came up with the you know his philosophy that he intended for the symphony framework so you can start to forgive the document a little bit by that point mm-hmm so I've like uh, annotated the, the document. I've got it printed in front of me. So I'll go through it a little bit and ask you questions about what you think about some of the things I've picked up on. Okay. Because you haven't you haven't read it, have you? Yet? I I've not read it. I I may have seen bits and pieces of it just because it was being talked about for a little while. But I I didn't have the time to actually go through and and look at it. But I wanted to. So yeah. Okay. Well, the first thing I, I highlighted uh, was. There is only one recommended way to install Symfony, and it says always use Composer to install Symfony, um, which sounds fine, except they recently released the Symfony installer. Have you seen that? Um, <laughs> no, I haven't seen the Symfony installer. So that's the other way to in- install Symfony, and I'm pretty sure it would be respected given yeah. that they Sensio released it. Um, and I think they actually, I wouldn't say they copied it from Laravel, but it's part of the developer experience type thing. So Laravel has an installer, and basically, they—I think I assume both work in a similar way. They have cron job set up, so a cron job goes onto a server, installs the skeleton, sorry, the the standard distribution, including all the composer packages, and tarballs the entire thing up. So rather than downloading the symphony, the standard distribution, then installing all the composer packages, which can take some time. You know, to solve the dependency tree and then install all the individual packages, you just download in one big tarball. So that's kind of cool. It is quicker. I've used it, and so yeah. So not so much not so much about the best practices themselves, but something I thought was interesting. Okay, so let's go. Uh, unfortunately, they use a blog application as the sort of example. I think they could have come up with something a little bit more. Enterprisey, I guess. Yeah. You know. Um they recommend using the old file structure, the the old directory structure, because there's a new directory structure. I don't know if it's for Symphony three or just Symphony whatever the next version's gonna be. But uh I thought that was interesting. And and I don't know why Why they, would they why would they recommend the old one? I think it's just because all the documentation's still that way and I don't know. Um but yeah. I assume that's going to change at some point. But but they, so they they specifically say in there use the old structure, or do they or do they just list the structure and it happens to be the old one? No, I'm pretty. I'm trying to find it now, but I'm pretty sure it says specifically use the old one. <laughs> it's like a no, I can't find where it says that, but definitely, definitely, they mention it somewhere. Oh yeah, it says here. In addition, Symphony Three will use a slightly different directory structure when it's released. The changes are pretty superficial, but for now, we recommend that you use the Symphony Two directory structure. 
Well, I suppose if it's the wait until Symphony 3, that's fair enough. Yeah. Uh, one of the things they mentioned uh, is creating one bundle called App Bundle for the application logic. Which is pretty much against what I think a lot of people have been doing. And um, I think it sounds fine. I don't really like the bundles. Uh, I yeah. try to put as little in them as possible. So having one for all that framework wiring up sounds pretty good to me. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Yeah, so bundles were the thing that threw me off of Symphony to begin with. It's a big reason why I, I still don't use it right away because um, I felt like everything had to be a bundle, in, in a bundle. Um, and I guess it's similar to, um, you know, Silex. In order to use it correctly, pretty much everything should be a service provider of some sort to, you know, hook into everything. So that's really all it is. So I, I understand it's like, a, in some ways, it's a pretty super, superficial thing. Um, but yeah, there there is some something there to like, what do you call the bundle? I guess app bundle makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, it takes that, that decision away from you. You don't have to name, you don't have to figure out what to name it. Like I think the packages main bundle is called web bundle or something like that. Yeah. Every project is going to be different. Um, if you only have one bundle, I guess it makes sense to just always call it app bundle. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, the best practice literally say bundles are meant to be something that can be reused as a standalone piece of software. And most bundles in projects aren't. I know. I mean, I have service providers in my applications, Silex service providers, and there's no way they'd ever be used as standalone because they have cross dependencies with other service providers. Yeah. But I don't really mind that because it's a, a neat way for me to organize things. Um, much like you probably organize within a bundle, you'd probably have several uh, dependency injection container configuration files for each part of your system in one still in one bundle if you see what i mean yeah and a service provider is wholly unintegrated with the framework anyway whereas a bundle is completely tightly integrated to symphony yeah it's not trivial to create a bundle i think that was another thing that i didn't necessarily like about them that you have to create you go through a lot of work to create a bundle yeah so um just creating one i guess that makes sense if, if that's all you need yeah Apparently, from Symphony 2.6 onwards, the app bundle is already created for you mm-hmm. as well, so you're just building on what's there. So that's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Moving on. Let's see. Excuse me while I... Uh... Um, so, onto configuration, it says um, to define infrastructure-related configuration options in the app config parameters file, which sounds fine, but I think it's the next stuff... Uh, Hang on. This gets me. Oh, it's the next bit that brought my attention. It says to define the application behavior related configuration options, app config, config.yaml, which I think is fine. And then it says uh, use constants to define configuration options that rarely change. And I think the example they give is pretty poor. So um, it's talking about. Um, pages and how many it, the example is number of items to put on the home page so I suppose this is number of blog posts and it recommends putting a constant on the post entity num items equals 10 which just sounds ridiculous to me um, 
number of items in context of a post entity doesn't explain anything to me. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I, I, I just thought that was a bit strange. I can understand, you know, use a constant. Or, to be honest, I'll probably just hard code that. I'd put a magic number in the controller myself, but I just thought it was a bit strange of a place to put it. Um, there's actually an example of the, the post repository with a, a find latest method that takes a limit argument and the limit, the default is the post num items constant. Uh, why you wouldn't have it at that point as a constant on the repository, I, I don't know. But yeah. Um, this next bit, I've, I've highlighted it and I don't actually understand it. Don't define a semantic dependency injection configuration for your bundles. What does that mean? Was there any what what's the text around that? Um hang on then. As explained in how to expose a semantic configuration for a bundle article, Symphony bundles have two choices on how to con handle configuration. Normal service configuration through the services.yaml file and semantic configuration through a special extension class. Oh, so it's um that thing where you've got the, the builder and you have to tell it um essentially the the schema for your yeah. services. Is that right? Yeah? Yeah. Oh yeah, that's silly. I wouldn't do that. Ever? You 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 would never do that? I would do for a reusable bundle like Foz user bundle, but not for a bundle that's part of the app. Would you? I think I have in the past. Seems like a lot of work. Yeah, well, I mean, that goes back to bundles being a lot of work. Yeah, true. Um, you know, so, I mean, what what would your options be just to have a really long parameter list? Well, what do you mean? Well, okay, so I guess I should step back. Um, Sculpin is based around HTTP kernel. Yep. Um, specifically so that I could leverage the bundles that I keep talking so poorly about. <laughs> yep. Uh, so within Scump, uh, within Sculpin itself, I, I use the semantic configuration stuff quite a bit. Um, like, like a lot. So, um, I, and I'm not sure how I would do it otherwise, short of, I guess, just having really big lists of parameters to get some of that configuration information in. Um, Okay, but maybe I don't understand semantic configuration as such. So as far as I know, semantic the semantic configuration is the way to build up the, the schema for the configuration for your services, right? Mm-hmm. So I just like just put the examples right in there as it is. There's no I don't I don't I don't know I don't know enough about the dependency injection container to understand how that might be different. So the services.yaml contains the actual configuration that is going to get used. Mm-hmm. The extension class would define how you can write that services and how, how that services definition might be valid, right? No. So the um, the semantic configuration stuff. Uh, so you know if you go into like kernel.yaml? Is it kernel.yaml? I don't know. Might be. Um, or maybe it's... So you know, well, so like, uh, say Symphony Security Bundle, right? okay, the, yep. the the way you configure Symphony Security, like there's that that big huge tree structure that you can build to do all sorts of stuff. The mm. semantic configuration is defining that part of it. 
that is then used to uh, to um, do stuff with the container. Yeah. But right. you could just have... But you don't have to... If you went ahead into that extension, having having configured your application, yep, and then you went into the extension and deleted that tree, your application would still work, right? Isn't the conf, config... Does it do something? Does it... Does it mutate the config or something? It. You, there's no way to access that configuration from the container. Uh, maybe I maybe I'm misunderstanding this stuff. Then I don't. I guess I don't have enough uh, experience with the with this. I can. I can see why they would say don't bother doing that for the application. Yeah. But to say never do it. Well, they don't say never do it. They say. Yeah. It says, the amount of work needed to define that configuration isn't worth it for bundles that aren't meant to be shared as third-party bundles. I guess I can. I guess I can see that. Um, on the other hand, I know that like Sculpin isn't necessarily intended to be shared as a bundle, but a lot of the stuff I ended up doing in there was a lot easier to do that way. I'll have, but, I'll have to, to look you, into it a little more. But you are sharing it and distributing it as a whole. I think that's massively different to yeah. you writing this bundle that is a one-off for your application that's never going to be installed by anybody else ever. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Okay, moving on anyway. Yep. So the next chapter is organizing your business logic. For most projects, you should store everything inside the app bundle. How do you feel about that? Well, I mean, if if we're... (laughs) Most projects. Most projects. Yeah. Well, yeah. And do you think it's fair to say for most projects and for most people? I would... Okay, so I would guess for most people coming to Symfony specifically because it's a full stack framework would probably accept that. Yeah, I think so too. The next paragraph literally after that, after showing the uh, an example of where to put stuff in a bundle, says there's no technical reason for putting business logic inside of a bundle. If you like, you can create your own namespace inside the source directory and put things in there, which is pretty much what I do. And it says the recommended approach to using the app bundle is for simplicity. If you're advanced enough to know what needs to live in a bundle and what can live outside of one, then feel free to do that, which I think is totally fair. Um, the next thing uh, I've highlighted is talking about services and the naming of services. And uh, it recommends keeping your service name short. Um, I've always sort of namespaced my services. I don't know if you do. Yeah. Um you know, previously they've uh, sort of recommended it was um, almost based on the on the namespace. So if you had app utils slugger is the the example they're given for sluggifying things, the service would be called app dot utils dot slugger, and they recommend actually just calling it slugger. I think with the amount of third party bundles people use, I feel like that's not good. Yeah, because the the chances of someone else coming up with a 
another service with the same name or you know that it might actually not happen very often yeah. but you're definitely going to run into some weird issues once once you do <laughs> i guess i guess the argument would be for reusable bundles you should be namespacing stuff but otherwise right. for your application do whatever the hell you like yeah um so yeah I don't, i'm a bit on the fence with that i don't really have a problem sort of one level of namespace on a service name myself yeah, I've actually done that in the past too. Just just enough to make sure that it's not going to collide with yeah. third-party bundles. Yeah, if that makes sense. Um, they recommend using YAML format to define the services rather than XML. The weird thing about that to me is that it, in my head, it contradicts what I initially read on bundles where they recommend using XML for everything. That, but it's for everything that needs to be published that other people will look at yeah so it's it's kind of hard to look at this and separate building your application from building symphony bundles yeah i don't maybe maybe within this context it's more clear but i i can see someone coming away from this this is how i write my bundles and then they're going to go write you know a third-party bundle that or a bundle that they're going to share with other people yeah. And then the conventions are going to be different depending on whether you're writing a bundle other people would consume versus the bundles that are just in your application. I think that's yeah. could be problematic. It makes it a bit more difficult to extract an applic- a bundle as well, doesn't it? As it were. Yeah. Um, next thing is um, no class parameters for services. So you know where the quite often the um, parameters have. You have the actual class name as a parameter that can be changed, mm-hmm. and then the service definition actually uses that yeah. parameter. So they recommend against doing that. That is awesome. Yeah, you pleased about that? I I I, uh, I can't I can't count the number of times that I've just gotten so frustrated by adding those extra parameters that I never used. Yeah. And I thought it was best practices to always allow for being able to swap out the class, and I never ever did. Like I, the the number of times that I tried to swap out the class, I could probably count on on my right hand. At the, just the amount of times I've had to, it's made it harder to read for me. Yeah. It's yep. enough to uh, really annoy me. Yeah, so that's awesome. I, I know that that's I, that was actually pretty common in Silex as well. You know, like there's like dispatcher dot class that you could yeah. swap out if you wanted to. And I, I, for all my Silex service providers, I would do the same thing and hardly ever use them. So um, I think that's great that that's not recommended. Yeah. Well, in Silex, it's a, the dispatcher is a special case because the dispatcher gets uh, created early, doesn't it? Really early. So you don't really have a chance to override it. Yeah. So by giving that, using the class parameter, you could override it. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Um, well, I, I think I think it should be at... my 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 stance on it over time has changed from always making every service able to be switched, you know, have its class switched out to by default, just putting the class in. And then if I have a use case or a reason to believe someone would ever want to switch that class, then expose it as a parameter, but not just doing it automatically. Yeah. Well, that's something I recommended in my Silex, maintaining and maintaining larger Silex app stock was that not everything has to be a service. You know, if you're creating a service, a definition for a particular service, and that service is going to have two or three dependencies. You don't have to go and create services for those dependencies. If you want to just inline them there and then, 
just do it because because we, you know we have this linear performance with Pimple for everything you add to it, it adds time to every single request on your application, mm-hmm. and everything you pull from it adds time to you. And so why bother? Pull stuff out when you need it, or pull stuff out when you need to extend. Pull stuff out when you need to override. But in the initial instance, just put everything in line if you can. So the next thing I've uh, highlighted is use annotations to find mapping information of the doctrine entities. Sorry if I uh, keep my audio keeps going up and down. I keep looking down to read from the document. I should have a. <laughs> so how do you feel about that? Oh, the age-old annotations debate. I'm sure. Do they have stuff in there later about the routes? Uh, yeah, they will do. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, so. This this is a couple of things actually, um, and again this for for this for the typical user who's used to full stack frameworks this is probably totally fine to get behind this so I'll just put that out there that I think that that's probably fine to recommend that for a new user who wants a full stack framework um, to do that for me personally um, the other issue there is that the entities are in the entities directory of your bundle. <laughs> And that's where they live, and that's where they belong, so to say. Um, and I, I don't. I that's one of the big things that I didn't like about bundles to begin with was yeah. this notion that your database entities have a place where they live. Um, and I don't like that. That's that that's going too far for me, and that's that's usually why I step away from a lot of uh, full stack frameworks. Um, it's just those sort of opinionated things turn me off pretty quickly. Kind of like you were talking earlier, like certain things will turn you off. That's one of the big ones for me is, you know, this is where your, this is where your database related code goes. And it's making so many assumptions about the fact that there's a database at all, um, that it's going to be doctrine entities that it's, you know, it's going to have to be annotated. Um, yeah. So I, I'm not a big fan of that, but I can see how it would make sense in this particular case for, you know, just getting started and trying to build a clean application without having to figure out on your own where that stuff is supposed to live. I'm a, I'm pretty pro, pro this, I think. Um, I use the annotations. Um, I don't really have anything against the YAML, but it is kind of nice to see the, you know, have that contextual information. When you're looking at the entity, you can also see the configuration in line. And my other thing that I like about the annotations is I think it's very easy to get Doctrine to dump out a YAML file so it can read all of the annotations and dump the YAML file for you. So if you ever actually got to the point where you'd had enough of the annotations and you wanted to switch, switching from annotation to YAML is very easy, I think, whereas switching from YAML to annotations would be difficult. And so I think starting with annotations is a good idea, and I doubt there'll be many people who actually switch to YAML in the long run. If it was a reusable bundle, like FOS user bundle, obviously you're gonna you need to support both the ODM and the ORM, and FOS user bundle actually supports Propel as well. So they want to keep the annotations out of the way for that. But anything that's actually in my application, I'm happy to keep annotations all the way. So next thing, uh, chapter five is about controllers. And the first thing I've highlighted is make your controller extend the framework bundle base controller 
and use annotations to configure routing, caching, and security whenever possible. And to, I'll follow it up with the second paragraph after that that says, and since your controllers should be thin and contain nothing more than a few lines of glue code, spending hours trying to decouple them from your framework doesn't benefit you in the long run. The amount of time wasted isn't worth the effort or the benefit. <laughs> I want, I'm interested in your thoughts on this. Well, if it's... So it's not recommending controllers as services. Definitely not. Okay. Which, to be fair, Fabian has come to like a little bit. Or he did at some point. Yeah, he seemed to, to think it made sense at one point. Particularly... could see the utility in it anyway. Yeah, I think that was particularly for the uh, web profiler, as he refactored it to be able to work with Silex and with uh, Drupal. Yeah. By using services as controllers. Yeah. Or controllers, controllers as services. However, that was for a reusable component thing. Yeah. And this is talk about your application as itself. So I'll tell you how I feel. I've gone, okay. I've gone completely full circle on this. At one point, I was very pro controllers as services. I wrote the controllers as services, uh, provider for Cyrilex and the documentation. And I still like it, particularly for uh, complicated controllers. But as I've got better and better at pushing the logic and the important logic into the domain or the application code away from the framework integration, I've actually found that tying my controllers tightly to the framework isn't a big deal because there's very little logic in there, as the document suggests. And I could switch between the two quite happily, you know, quite easily. Mm-hmm. I mentioned earlier that I'd converted 70 closure-based uh, controllers to classes, and I did all of that based on a base controller for simplicity, and mm-hmm. it worked quick enough. I haven't had any problems. I tend not to test my controllers anyway, so I don't need to worry about isolation or anything like that. Well, sorry, I do test my controls, but they're always integration or acceptance tests. So, yeah, so I agree with that one as well. So, how, given we're, we're kind of looking at this, all, looking at this also from like a beginner's perspective, how many people are actually going to be able to write thin controllers in very, practice? Very few, I imagine. Well, yeah. I know, no, I'm wrong, they'd be able to, but whether they do or not. Right. That, but, I guess that would be my only thought on that. Is yeah, but if they can't do that, then they probably wouldn't write decent controls yeah. as services anyway. Yeah, you know, the, the first thing they'd do is pass in the container or something. Yeah. <laughs> so okay, moving on. Let's see what else we can find. Um. Don't use the template annotation to configure the template used by the controller. Their arguments for not using it are that most of the time the template annotation is used without any parameters, so it's unclear to people reading the code as to which template will get rendered. Um, It's a bit too magical. 
I guess I, I don't know enough about how, what that would do to really have an opinion on it. Well, um, you know your uh, view listener PR for Silex. Right. It's essentially that. So your controller can return a, a hash of view variables mm-hmm. and the at template annotation tells the framework which template to render with that as the with those with that hash map as the uh right so so i mean i i know that symphony's uh like the the view string that they pass means something like uh bundle name colon whatever yeah uh, html dot whatever like so the, the the reason that they're saying this is because the the magic of determining what string gets created based on that action call is too magical. Yeah, I think so. I, I, I think it's a little bit invalid, this one. Given that I know some of the other magic that some of the other things it recommends uses, I think this one's a bit weak. But yeah, basically they're saying because it's harder to understand which is the sort of default template that will get rendered based on the name of the controller and the bundle. Yeah, seems pretty... Seems weak, yeah. I, I wasn't sure if I was understanding the issue correctly, but that was the first thing that I thought that... I mean, if <laughs> you only have to do that once or twice to, to know what the pattern is. Mm. So it's not it's not an issue. I wouldn't. I wouldn't think, and in fact, which controller gets which controller actually gets called is sort of magical in some cases too. So it's not yeah. like it's any less magic. So, oh, they do argue that uh, it has a slight performance impact; adds about twenty milliseconds hmm. over using uh, just rendering in the template. So, oh, sorry, in the controller. So, I suppose that's viable. I suppose. Okay, the next thing it talks about is using uh, the parameter converters. Wait, 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 wait. So. The view listener, because they're using the template annotation that triggers a view listener and just the view listener itself firing adds 20 milliseconds? That's what it says, yeah. It wow. says uh, that the on the sample blog application, rendering the homepage took 5 milliseconds using Donald this render, and it took 26 milliseconds using the at template annotation. So I don't know. Wow. Yeah. So, so what? So the solution is to actually render it manually yourself inside. That's what they recommend. Yes. Wow. So yeah. Okay. The next thing, you see, this is where it contradicts for me. The next thing it does is start talk about using the param converter annotation to convert doctrine entities when it's simple and convenient. Now, do you know how that works? Uh, the request listener looks at the, the the params and then dumps it into the request attributes. Yeah, so it looked for, um, you know, if your URL match. Yeah, if your if your should your um controller method takes a a post is type it's one of its arguments is type into to post and there's only one of them. And the URL has an ID part. Sorry, the root has an ID part. It will, and you can you can tell it with a a param converter to literally look in doctrine and get a post with that ID, which I think is significantly more magical than 
the sort of conventions for looking up a template name. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know. Maybe that's just me. And it even talks about using the sort of really magic stuff with the program converters where you're telling uh, the post... Sorry, the pram converter, which field to use, like if it's a slug for a post and things like that, which I don't like. I don't think it takes much to to look those up from a repository in your code yourself. Yeah. Um, so, okay, next thing, this is less interesting stuff, I think, now. Templates. Recommend storing all your applications templates in app resources view, so not putting templates in the bundle. Huh, okay. Why... What, what what reasons given for that? Pretty much because of the stuff you just said about the, you know, um, it's vendor bundle name without any separators, right? Then a colon, then what is it? Then the name of the controller, then the action names, usually the sort of standard, yeah. So. yeah. And they just said it was that's not very good. <laughs> So to keep it simple, just bundle everything into that one folder and use the you know relative path from there, which I kind of like. Yeah. Okay, next. Go on. I'll try and get through this quicker. Oh, sorry, I've not highlighted anything more in the uh, template section. Uh, security might be quite a quiet one because it's so complicated, the security stuff, that I ignored most of it. Oh, this is something that is in there that I think most people knew anyway. Um, basically, use voters whenever you can. Stay away from the ACL. I think everyone knows and understands that. Mm-hmm. So um, you only ever really need to use the Symfony ACL if the access control is going to be configured by something like an admin interface. You know, where you select- selectively go to go to say this user or this group of people are allowed to do this, this, and this for this particular object or this particular set of objects and so on. But otherwise, use voters, which I think is cool. And again, going back to the annotations, they recommend using the, the security tenant annotations with things like the, um, I think there's the, you know, the expression type stuff goes in those annotations, expression engine things. They do recommend trying to pull stuff out where you can because you could whatever goes in an expression engine thing in the annotation could effectively be a method on the object if you like yeah but again I don't really like that stuff I've done some really interesting things with the expression engine stuff um, you starting to like it um, a little bit but I also feel like it's a little scary so uh, but I it's been interesting to see what you can do with it. I, I've done some mostly stuff with the request stack to get access to a tenant to create services based on the user that's logged in. Um, and I'm sure there's other, I mean, there's other ways that you could do something like that, but this was, it was the easiest way to, to get it done and expression engine, let let me do that really well. So, or is, is it, is expression engine? Is that what it's called or something like that? Yeah. Oh no! Because um, is that the CMS expression engine? That's what I was going to say. Expression engine didn't sound right. It might be expression language or something. Like that. Yeah, something like that. Okay, next bit. Uh, web assets. I didn't really 
get much from this because I don't really use it, but they recommend storing all your assets in the web directory. And it actually says, use Ascetic to compile, combine, and minimize web assets unless you're comfortable with front-end tools like Grunt.js. Now, I think that's a bit lame, and especially because Chris Wallsmith, who created Ascetic, seems to be a bit like not too sure about Ascetic's future. Um, he's using things like Require.js for a lot of his stuff, and when you know yeah. bypasses Ascetic almost altogether, right? Well, when I've looked at Ascetic, because a lot a lot of people have asked me to try to get Ascetic into Sculpin somehow, and Ascetic bundle is relies on way too much stuff from within Symphony Core to be able to do that cleanly. Right. Um, I've, I've tried, but it doesn't work very well. But from what I can tell, Ascetic uses these other tools anyway. Like it, it doesn't do anything magic. It just calls out to these other a bunch of these other things. Like it actually calls out to proper uh, SAS compilers and proper less compilers. I think there is a less PHP option, like you can specify that. But I, I'm trying to figure out what Ascetic really buys you. Because you, if you still have to end up installing Java to get the you know the minifiers running or Node to get the minifiers running or whatever, then I'm not sure what what it buys you, really. Do you use Ascetic? I don't know. I guess it buys you a little bit of framework integration, right? Yeah. You know, so you can use tags in Twig or... Well, you, I don't know. Yeah. I, so, I, I've i pretty much given up trying to get Ascetic into Sculpin just because I don't... Like, people seem to be doing really great otherwise, and they're already using third-party tools anyway, like, like Bower and Grunt mm. and all these other things, so... I mean, I'm, I'm just not up to speed with this stuff. You know I, how I build my front-end assets, right? <laughs> Yeah, I have a make file, and I use pipes, Unix pipes, to shovel yeah. stuff all over the place. And I, mm-hmm. I write a basic uh, manifest file to PHP that my framework can read, and I can use Twig to. That's it. Yeah, yeah. So I'm sure Grunt and Gulp and Assetic do all of that stuff in a much nicer way, but it works for me. So yeah. screw it. Okay, so next chapter is testing, and I really liked really liked this part. It says um, there's one little thing. It says define a functional test that at least checks if your application pages are successfully loading, and they literally recommend having a big array just of URLs for your site and looping over them to make sure you get a 200 response back. And I thought, how quick and simple a way is that for some people to get into testing, like to have yeah. to have something in your app, you know what I mean, that just literally loops over URLs that should always be there, that should always right. respond appropriately. Mm-hmm. So I thought, that, I thought that was quite cool. It's something I'd not even thought about doing myself before. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, that was about in tested. The other stuff's pretty boring. Mm-hmm. Let's go on to the next chapter. I think that's it. That's it. That's the end. That's the only. That's all the stuff I found interesting in there. There's other stuff in there, like uh, internationalization stuff, but I don't really understand that. I've never had to build a site for an international audience, so I I haven't looked at that stuff. So, but yeah, that's about it. I hope it wasn't too boring for the listeners. Now. <laughs> <laughs> well, so so this this caused quite a commotion, at least for a little while, a couple of weeks ago. Um, why? It does, I mean, it's it sounds like a, an opinionated way to 
describe how the creator of Symphony thinks that applications should be built, but why did any, why did everyone care? What was the big so, underlying issue? I think some of the wording, like at the beginning, was definitely. Um, I think the fact that it was pretty much the opinion of maybe two or three people, mm-hmm. rather than a slightly wider audience. I don't think it's quite clear enough about what best practices are. And it mentions it throughout the throughout the, the the document about things like if you're a little bit more advanced, you might want to do this and so on and so forth. But I think we could do with a bit more of a definition of what best practices are and what they mean by it within the document. But, right. other, but otherwise, I don't really know what people made such a fuss about. There's, few, there's always going to be bits that people disagree with, but right. I think in general, I thought it was quite a good good start. Mm-hmm. And at least it gives you something, because Symphony is so flexible that, like you say, people people are actually put off by how flexible it is and how much of a steep learning curve there is. Yeah. So I think having something is a hell of a lot better than not having anything at all. Yeah, I've, I've, I, I know that we both hear that a lot about Silex, especially, that it's so flexible that no one knows where anything goes. And there's so many varied ways that people can actually implement that. It's, it would be kind of nice to have something like this that someone could look at and say, okay, this is why these things are in these locations. And this is the reason why, you know, the, the, you know, standard edition ships with the files in these locations. And this is what I should do in here. So I think, it, I think it makes sense. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I just think it was all right, and I, I just don't think there was any need for the fuss, I guess. I don't know. And like I say, things like I've, the way I've come to feel about the better I've got at pushing logic into the right places and making my controllers thin appropriately, and I mean appropriately, the less need I have for things like decoupling from the framework in that portion, that's fine. Yeah. Pla- that That is the place to couple. So I'm happy about it. I still do a lot of things pretty well in there. Uh, but still, base control is not a big deal for me. So, cool. Yeah. Anything else you want to discuss? Um, True North PHP. Cool. Is going on right now. So oh, um, Dfly Dev. Did you sponsor in some way? Yeah. Yeah. Dragonfly. Uh, Dfly Dev. Yes. I'm. I'm going to try and switch to branding at Dfly Dev. So, yeah. Dfly Dev sponsored. Um, we did a, a scholarship sponsorship to get someone to go who wasn't going to be able to go otherwise. So um, that was a lot of fun. The The downside is that I managed to go to ZenCon and not give stickers to anybody to bring to True North. <laughs> I wanted to send something up, some cool swag, like uh, send up a bunch of that podcast stickers and Sculpin stickers and DeFly Dev stickers, and I didn't get to it. So I'm pretty bummed about that. But uh, that's going on now. Um, it's a great concert. A concert. It's a great conference. And, um, yeah, so I, I'm hoping I can get, get to go next year again. Hmm. Uh, so last year was the, like my third conference ever. So it was a lot of fun. I had a lot of, a lot of fun there last year and it's, it's in Canada and cold and awesome. Yeah. Sounds like people will be having a lot of fun there. Yeah. I've been, I've been seeing the tweets all day and I'm like, oh man, it looks like everyone's having a blast. Yeah, Conference envy. Yeah. Yeah. Which I shouldn't complain. <laughs> no, no, you're getting your fair share at the minute. Yeah, yeah. And uh, PHP World is next week, so I'm going to be out of town f- for another week and then um, back in Madison till the end of the year, hopefully. I uh, 
we, we were going to go to North Dakota again in December and uh, Beck and I talked about it and decided that it, we just, we've done enough travel this year. We should just take some time, uh, finally get settled in here. We got our furniture from Ikea finally set up. So, um, that was a, I think it took them exactly two months from the time that was supposed to be delivered to the time we got it. <laughs> so, uh, that was, that was a, a long time without furniture, but we weren't here for most of that time, which that wasn't why we didn't get the furniture delivered. <laughs> but uh, had we been here, I mean, or had they delivered it earlier, we wouldn't have been here for it anyway. But anyway, so, so we're, we're, we're happy now. We're, we're going to be able to have supper as a family and lunch as a family, uh, sitting at a proper table instead of, uh, sitting cross-legged on the floor. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Well done. Yep. Cool. So, should we? Uh, are, are we done with this for today? I don't know what. How long we've been recording? It's gonna be a long one. Yeah. I don't know. I don't have anything more to give. Uh, nothing we can't talk about next time. So. Cool. Yeah. Thanks, everyone. Yep. Thanks for listening. That's a wrap. You've been listening to That Podcast with Bo and Dave. You can find Bo on Twitter and Google Plus at Bo Simonson and Dave on Twitter at Dave Development. You can subscribe to this podcast and review it on iTunes. If you'd like to review us but don't feel like we've earned five stars, email us so that we can talk about your issues. You can also subscribe to this podcast with RSS from our website, thatpodcast.io. From our website, you can also sign up for our newsletter to get super secret extra content from Bo and Dave sent directly to your inbox. Like the music? You can thank Gorillo for allowing us to sample the track Dust Kingdom for our intro and outro. You can find Dust Kingdom and other tracks by Grillo at grillo.bandcamp.com, spelled G-R-I-L-L-O. Thoughts on this old pumps out. Real hot stuff. Those stores depress us.